Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dr. Franz DeWald, the primatologist and author of numerous books, most recently, Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves, which has elicited enthusiastic accolades, including an extended rave review in the New York Times by no less an authority than Cy Montgomery, who called it DeWall's game-changing book. DeWall opens the book painting a powerful scene involving a frail, dying chimpanzee, the titular Mama, and an old friend of hers, a biologist that Mama had known for many years. This poignant prelude set the stage for what follows in the book, drawing on research that he and an array of international colleagues have conducted. DeWall unfurls a comprehensive treatise that offers stories about rats, horses, dogs, dolphins, elephants, apes, and other animals that clearly establishes that humans are not the only species with the capacity for love, hate, fear, shame, joy, generosity, empathy, and more. I'll find out more about animal emotions as we discuss the book and more when I speak with Dr. Franz DeWall in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the show, I'll speak with Amber Simpson, one of the organizers of the ninth annual Tampa Vegan Bake Sale coming up April 13th at Mojo Books and Records, once again setting up a multifaceted record store day, wherein buying delicious items helps homeless and feral cats. It sounds like a magic trick, and we'll explain how that trick works later in the program. Right now, though, let's get to Dr. DeWall with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Franz DeWall on Talking Animals. Good morning, Dr. DeWall. Good morning. Thanks for joining me today on Talking Animals. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Congratulations on the book, which, as I noted there a moment ago, has just drawn all sorts of of attention and accolades, as many of your books have, but more than a few reviewers who are steeped in, in uh, all your work have said this might well be your best book. So That's good. Yeah, so far so good, right? Yeah. So I'd like to, uh, in, in a way, sort of with that in mind, maybe start with something of a hypothetical. So let's say someone has heard about Mama's Last Hug, hasn't yet had a chance to read the book, but is deeply skeptical maybe about its core premise that animals experience an array of emotions just as humans do. What one or, or maybe two stories would you cite from the book to help sort of mitigate this hypothetical person's skepticism? And for now, at least, the mama story itself is ineligible. We'll, of course, get to that in a moment. Well, you know, the stories, are, there's something that you can do as a young chimp that um, you can also do as a child. You can tickle them, and they have tickling spots, and they will laugh. They will produce laughing sounds, like, <laughs> like and they will have a laugh expression on their face, it's basically indistinguishable. I think it's it's less loud. It's it's softer than in the human, but other than that, it's very similar. And and the reactions are similar. They try to push your hands away, but if if you move them away, they they want them to come back. The interesting thing is that uh, someone has tried the same thing with rats. That that's Jak Panksepp, who did uh, uh, neuroscience on um, on rat emotions, 
And he started doing the same thing with raps, and he found that they also vocalize. Um, so he, he brought the vocalizations down to human level so that we could hear them. And um, he, he did the same sort of game with them. And basically, this laugh reaction in a playful context is probably universal, um, in the mammals at least. Uh, among the many things I learned from your book was that, yeah, if, if you do tickle a rat, if you have the opportunity at least somehow to tickle a rat, that they will laugh or something recognizable as laughter does ensue. So Yeah, yeah. and then there's, there's other studies. There's a, there's a study that was done with kias, you know, a sort of parrot in New Zealand, and they played uh, laugh sounds because these birds, they when they play and they wrestle and they, they manipulate objects and stuff like that, they have certain vocalizations that they make. And so what they did is they started playing these vocalizations to them while they were just uh, foraging on the road or something, and they became extremely playful as a result. They, they started all of a sudden playing. So I think... Um, there's lots of animals that have these play vocalizations, and, and in human, it's la- we call it laughter. So, in your view, then, why are people still skeptical about the notion of animals feeling emotions? I mean, they I, obviously, I think they concede uh, anger uh, or mm-hmm. aggression, which is fairly easy to recognize, I suppose. But when you start to say, hey, well, they experience shame or empathy, a lot of people say, okay, now really gone too far. I mean, what does this say about our view of animals and what does this say about our view of ourselves? Well, you know, there was a time in Darwin's days that you could talk openly about animal emotions. Darwin wrote a whole book about it, the expression of the emotions. Then we got a whole century, which I call the dark century, uh, during which Skinner and his followers dominated, and they didn't want us to talk about inner states at all. They wanted, and that's why they're called behaviorists. They wanted to, us to pay attention to behavior, and you would not talk about emotions or feelings or thoughts or, or whatever happens at the interior. And not even for animals, this was also, they applied this also for humans until, of course, the psychologists said, no, we're not going to do that. That's not a good idea. But um, they wanted to apply the same rules to to human behavior. And um, during that time, there was a a big taboo on the emotions. You, You would... I was taught as a student, you never use the word emotion. And yes, you can talk about aggressive behavior. You're not going to talk about anger. You can talk about escape behavior. You're not going to talk about fear. Hmm. So the emotional terminology became taboo. And now we're finally living in a time, uh, last 20 years, I would say, especially because of the neuroscientists. So neuroscientists, they, they study fear in the amygdala of the rat, and then they put humans in a, in a brain scanner and show them scary images and what lights up the amygdala, just as in the rats. And so the, the neuroscientists tell us, that a lot of these emotions have things in common between us and other species. And I think they're breaking open that box, and then that's why we, we're now in a time where we can talk about the emotions again. Sounds like, though, during that, you call it the taboo period, that I guess the prevailing view, or at least a, a, a loud and common one, was that if you're going to talk about animals having emotions that way, it just didn't represent good science, and therefore I guess you couldn't be taken seriously. Yeah, I think it was because the... They confuse emotions and feelings, and I, I do my best in the book to explain the difference. The feelings, feelings are internal states, are private states. Uh, I cannot even know your feelings. You, you, can, you can describe your feelings. You can say, I was sad or I was happy. Uh, I, I, I don't know what that is, yeah. whether that's the same for you as it is for me. So feelings are hard to know for humans, and feelings are impossible to know for animals. We can speculate. I, I, we speculate all the time, of course, about animal feelings, but um, they're hard to know. 
The emotions, though, they can be perfectly measured. And so I don't know why people were afraid, the scientists were afraid of the emotions, because the emotions are expressed in the body. They, they, they change your hormone levels, they change your, your breathing, your, uh, your um, blood pressure, your temperature, your voice, your face, everything changes. And so emotions have an effect on the body, and that's perfectly measurable. And so I don't see why they were so afraid of it, but I think they were confusing feelings and emotions, and that's why they stayed away from them. So I guess, uh, as the example you gave a moment ago about just the neuroscientists and what they discovered when they looked at how the brain does light up when a certain thing happens, I mean, that's an example of something that sort of said, hey, yeah, we'll grant you that we can't measure feelings, but we absolutely can measure emotions, and here's one example, and here's body temperature, and here's some other things that do make it measurable. Yeah. Yeah, and also you, I think you can assume that, especially with animals close to us, such as, let's say, the primates, but probably all the mammals, like also dogs and cats, you can assume that um, what they experience at the interior, so the feelings, are similar too. So, so for example, people say, will say, my, my dog is jealous. And then uh, in the old days, the scientists would say, now, don't be anthropomorphic. Don't use that kind of terms for your dog. But, you, you know, dogs have jealous reactions that we can measure and you can... There's certain situations where they show them, especially if, if a stranger comes in and is very friendly with the one that they are close to, they're, they're going to show that kind of reactions. And so you can measure the reaction, and you can also assume, I think, that the feelings behind it are probably going to be similar, because a dog brain is not so different from a human brain. So, so that's an assumption. That's, that's not something we can know for, for sure. But I think um, that's a fair assumption. And to underscore the book's premise about animals indeed experiencing an array of emotions, you tell stories throughout the book that draw on research not only that you've conducted over some four decades or, or thereabouts, but also research that a number of your peers have conducted. So I'd be curious to know, um, just because, again, some of those things, I think people, even if they don't resist uh, the idea that animals experience emotions and don't have something immediately against anthropomorphism. Still, in assembling these stories that are, again, rooted in, in research that your colleagues, let's say, have conducted, were there some stories or just some research results that even you found surprising as you were sort of assembling the book? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. So, for example, there, there is now in the psychology literature, there's, there's this claim that only humans know disgust. Only humans have the emotion of disgust, mm -hmm. which for me is very surprising because disgust is something that starts, I think, with avoiding um, poisonous food, avoiding contaminations, avoiding parasites. And so you're disgusted by, say, like, like rotting food, you're going to be disgusted by because you shouldn't be eating it. So I think it's a very old emotion. And, and for example, dogs, dogs are used as an example for the, by these people. They say, well, dogs, you know, they... They lick their testicles and they eat feces, and so dogs clearly have no disgust. But, you know, you, you present your dog with a piece of lemon, and, and actually you should not do that, but you present them with a citrus uh, fruit, and they're going to be recoiling, and they're going to be shaking their head, and they, they have a disgust response to things that they shouldn't be eating, which is like the citrus fruit. So all animals have these disgust responses, and in my writing on disgust, I, di I discovered example after example, because there's actually so many examples of animals being disgusted by certain things. There's, there are certain birds who keep their nests extremely clean, so they must be disgusted by contaminations in their nest, or, for example, the poop of their offspring and things like that. Yeah. So... Um, 
I'm convinced that disgust is a very old emotion, and the more I wrote about it, the more I discovered uh, examples of it. Right. And again, I guess what that further sort of elucidates is that, back to the dog example, yeah, okay, licking their testicles or eating their poop doesn't bother the, the dog that's sitting in your living room there, uh, uh, whatever. But the the citrus, the lemon thing, because that's actually uh, could poison that dog, they do yeah. react strongly. Yeah, so it's a very adaptive emotion. Yeah. So a different animal might react differently to different things uh, in terms of what might disgust it because it is protecting the animal, I guess, from ingesting something that actually could do it harm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, this is Talking Animals on uh, WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Franz DeWall, the uh, primatologist and author of numerous books, most recently Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. If you'd like to ask Dr. DeWall a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. Let's uh, get a caller involved right now. In fact, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Franz DeWall. Yeah, it's a real honor to talk to you, uh, along with Jane Goodall. You are one of the, <clears throat> the heroes of this field, and thank you. Um, I think your work touches on issues of animal sentience, animal personhood, animal rights, <clears throat> and human speciesism. The idea that humans have that we're the best, we're the only species that counts. Um, I'd like you to comment on those topics, and also, when you look at how humans now are an anthropogenic mass extinction event, and all of the other animals have so much less power to change and destroy the biosphere than we do, how did, how did it get to this place where one species has so much technological communications and destructive power, and all of the other ones fit into ecosystems' niches properly and wouldn't destroy their native habitats um, and don't. What do you think about that? Yeah. yeah, so the book has a whole chapter on sentence, and, and I'm struggling with it because um, se- sentience in a very basic sense is that you are sensitive to internal states uh, like pleasure and pain, and in that sense I have really no trouble saying that that's true for probably all animals with brains, um, and maybe even for plants. People are talking now about sentience in plants. But um, at, the, at the higher levels of, of it, um, it is more like consciousness, and that is really something I'm struggling with. But anyway, it, I have this whole chapter where I try to elaborate, and I do believe that my work has moral implications. I, I do believe... I'm, I'm not a big, um, I'm, I'm not a legal scholar, and so I don't talk much about personhood and rights and stuff like that. But I do believe that we have an obligation to treat the animals that are in our care the best possible way, and we're not doing that clearly. We, we're clearly sort of neglecting them, or sometimes even being cruel to them. And so um, that is an issue. In the time that we thought that animals were stimulus response machines, which was what the behaviorists wanted us to believe, we could do anything we wanted with them. Because if an animal is like a machine, you can do whatever you want. But now that we are talking about animal cognition and intelligence and feelings and emotions, uh, it's clear that we cannot go on the way we, are, we have been doing. And, and I think we, uh, we should revamp our, our whole attitude towards animals. And, and you, you mentioned ecological issues. Well, that, that's another I don't discuss them very much in the book, but that's another thing, is that that whole attitude that we are superior and that we're not part of nature has, of course, also led to all the disasters that we see now around us ecologically. 
Okay, well, thank you for responding to our callers' questions and comments. So, Dr. DeWall, since the new book's primary title is a nod to a chimpanzee matriarch as she was reaching the end of her life, I think it's only fitting that we discuss the farewell encounter that is so pivotal and, in fact, constitutes the opening pages of the book. Set the scene for us, if you would, with Mama. Well, Mama was um, the alpha female of a very large, actually the world's largest captive colony of chimpanzees at a zoo. And so that's 25 chimps who live on a very large island. And she has been alpha female there for 40 years. She was not physically dominant over the males, but she was extremely powerful. I always make a, a distinction between the rank of an individual and the power that they have, the power in, in terms of influencing group processes. And Mama was really very pivotal in that group. And that's why, why we called her Mama, is because she was the mother of the group, more or less. And she uh, lived a long life and, and died at the age of 59, which is really old for a chimpanzee in captivity, and, and is, is older than usually chimps get in the wild. And um, when she was on her deathbed, um, Jan van Hoof, my professor, actually, he was 80 years old at the time, he went into her night cage to say goodbye. And normally we never go into the same space as where a chimpanzee, an adult chimpanzee is, because that's far too dangerous to do. But in this case, since she was so weakened, and since he had known her also for 40 years and had visited her regularly, and so they knew each other very well, he went in with her. And uh, she, at first, she didn't notice him. She she was very much asleep uh, in her straw bed. And then they videotaped the encounter, and so the video went viral, and, and I think it has probably been seen by more than 100 million people, and you can see it on the Internet if you look for Mama and her encounter with Van Hoof. And so um, she, she sort of wakes up and then looks at him and has a big grin on her face and vocalizes and then embraces him, and he embraces her. And so that encounter uh, touched many people. And, and I think that, that it touched the people, as, um, I can fully understand it touched me also tremendously, because I know both individuals uh, very well. Uh, but also people were very surprised by it. And that, that is something that surprised me, is that people were very surprised by how human-like the expression of the emotion was in Mama, how her gestures and her facial expression were so similar to what humans do. And I thought, well, we all know that chimps are our closest relatives, so don't, don't people know that... The chimps also express their emotions very similar to what we do. And so that's why I decided to take that as the starting point, uh, because people can actually see it on on the Internet, so they can compare what I describe and what they see. And so I took that as the starting point for the book. And it really uh, so, so powerful and so poignant. And when he walks in, it it sort of put me in the mind of of a human on, on her deathbed and a grown child or sibling or someone has flown across the country trying to essentially get there to visit the patient and, and say goodbye, really. Mm-hmm. And, but I think, yeah, what really is striking because maybe you say you're surprised by the reaction, but even though, of course, you've been steeped in uh, chimps and other uh, primates for all these years, as you also noted, it's very unusual to see a chimp, even in, in the kind of frail state that Mama was, literally alongside a human, so you can really see both of them reacting to the situation. And that's where it was so, so powerful because, I mean, at least part of what got to me about it was that she seemed to actually be comforting him. <laughs> Even yeah. though she was obviously, you know, she at this point it was already clear that she was refusing food and she was really 
really yeah. very close to the end. But she really sort of uh, blossomed when she saw him and then was, you know, patting him and touching him in ways that just made it clear that she was, A, happy to see him, but B, sort of comforting him, which yeah. I just found. Well, that was typically Mama. She, she was the mediator in the group. She was also the one who comforted everyone after fights and so consolation of individuals. And in this case, she must have sensed, that's my guess, that she sensed from the behavior of Jan van Hoof that he was nervous. Because he never goes, we never go in with an adult simp, so he was maybe a bit nervous about it. And that she may have sensed that, and that she, uh, uh, she not just greeted him, but she also calmed him down. And, and that is typically her behavior, uh, has been her behavior all the time. Well, again, it made perfect sense that you would start the book that way. And like you say, for people who have seen the video, or it's easily e easy to find online. And again, it, it's uh, f uh, quite a powerful uh, bit of viewing for people who haven't yet seen it. But um, So the animals kind of cited in the book, the stories that sort of underscore the range of emotions they experience, are predominantly captive. They're living in zoos or other kind of uh, situations like that. Um, Mom lived at the Burger Zoo. You talk about watching chimps from your office at the, um, the uh, Primates Research Center. Uh, Alex is, is this high-profile pet parrot that uh, you mm -hmm. allude to. So given your decades studying animal behavior, what's your sense of the differences there may be in animal emotions when the animals might be in the wild as opposed to in captivity? Yeah, I think in terms of the basic psychology and emotional life, I don't think the differences are that great because it's, it's just humans who live, let's say, in the countryside or in the city. They're still both humans and they still have a human psychology, even though their environments are quite different. So, so I don't think that is an effect. In, in the wild, of course, animals are very preoccupied by finding food and that's their business basically the whole day as they're looking for food and they're traveling a, a lot more than animals in captivity. Yeah. And so the social relationships are less intense they have less time for social relationships, and they are sometimes more dispersed. And so that, that are, those are differences. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the basic psychology remains the same. And the basic question of do they have emotions and what do they do with these emotions, um, I think that question remains basically the same. And in a way, some of the animal emotions that we might be familiar with, at least initially, have come from, or maybe even exclusively in some cases, from the wild. For example, elephants grieving. Well, I'm sure they, there's probably documented cases of them grieving when a fellow uh, zoo or sanctuary elephant dies. But, I mean, we really have... Also, yeah, that's also a function of what, what do we do in captivity. We, we often keep animals away of the dead. So, some, yeah. say an elephant dies in captivity, then we remove the elephant. And in the wild, of course, they stay around and the bones stay around. And so that's why elephants visit these, these bone cemeteries and, and, and lift them up and smell them. With Mama, for example, the chimpanzee, the zoo decided, and I thought this was great, they decided to let all the, the members of the colony to, to visit her after she had died, just, just to see the reactions and also to give them an opportunity to say goodbye to her. Yeah. And um, that is also documented what happened. And actually, the, the females were very interested. The males were not so interested in this case. Uh, and they, they tested her out also. They would 
let's say, lift up an arm and drop it, to, and which is maybe a way of testing, is she really dead, you know? Right, or is she just sleeping or something? Also? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because in that in the case, obviously, is playing out a ritual. And as we were just talking about the, the elephants in the wild, there's any number of rituals when they die and the elephants come by and touch them with their trunk or do other things that are very much, I think, at this point, clearly part of a, a grieving process. Yeah. Um, so let's take another uh, caller. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Franz DeWall. Hello. I can kind of hear that you're there, but uh, either you have a bad cell connection or give me one more chance. Hello, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Franz DeWall. Oh, sorry, I guess we just uh, maybe just try back if you can, because I, I could kind of hear that you were there, but something happened to the connection. Let's talk a little bit. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about in terms of the, the emotions and feelings and things that you do document in the book. I responded powerfully to the section on laughter in part because I have kind of a longtime professional interest in comedy and as such. Um, I've, I've seen comedy for a long time and, and been involved with diff different aspects. So I kind of almost felt like you described at one point like people going to see a good stand-up comedian and imagining the way they might react rather than laughing, which is to say that's funny. And yet that's exactly what people like me who've been in the business or just seen tons and tons of comedy often do. The thing I thought also was really great is you make a reference to the theater critic, John Lahr, who wrote really intelligently about sort of great clowns, of course, uh, including his own father, Bert Lahr. And, um, and one time, my wife and I spent a few days with him while he was attending what I think considered the world's biggest comedy festival in Montreal. And just to sort of see him reacting and some of the comments that he made, including uh, after one show, he said, wasn't that dire? I'll never forget those words. But, um, but, but you know, laughter is, uh, I describe it as an animalistic response, because the most civilized response would be, you tell me a joke and I say, that was funny. That would be very civilized, but you would not be very happy with that if you are a comedian. Of course, of you course. You want me to fall off my chair laughing. That's right. what you want. Yeah. And that is very animalistic. People pee in their pants. They lose control over themselves. They get completely out of breath. They, they turn red, basically. So <laughs> that's what you want. Right. And, and it's a very animalistic display. Yeah, well, that's why people like me sit in the back of the of the club, so no one has to. The performer doesn't have to see somebody sort of not reacting as you've described the way they should. If if something is truly funny, there should be that kind of explosive uh, response. And if uh, just by sheer uh, repeated exposure, some of us don't re respond that way, the least you can do is not sit anywhere near where the comedian can see you. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. Laughing and crying have that have that in common. Is that we we sort of lose control over our bodies. You know, it's it's really can get really bad. Yeah. And so uh, one of our uh, emailers, by the way, says, uh, this is Don Goldstein. Professor DeWall is so right. Anyone who thinks animals don't have emotions uh, isn't listening, he says. And uh, he's very involved with uh, greyhounds and uh, greyhound rescue and has any number of uh -huh. greyhounds living with him at any given moment. So I'm sure he's particularly uh, drawing on that experience. So one thing that uh, we talked about earlier, Dr. Uh, DeWall, is um, anger and aggression. And I know one of the things that you sort of wandered into for maybe a little initially looking at those things earlier in your career was reconciliation. So I think that's a really interesting area for, for all the reasons that we're sort of discussing related to the book. Maybe you could sort of talk about how you came to that and what, what we're really talking about in this case when we talk about reconciliation. Well, reconciliation is something that I discovered as a student uh, very, very long ago. 
And uh, at that time, no one was particularly interested in, in it because at that time, everything we said about animals, but also about humans, was about selfishness and competition and aggression and uh, winners and losers. And no one was interested in what happens after the confrontation. But I discovered that chimpanzees kiss and embrace each other after fight. And uh, initially, I didn't know what it was and why they did it, but um, now we have maybe 300 studies on all sorts of species, including your average dog. All the animals do reconcile after fight, especially with individuals, of course, that they are close to. They, do it, they don't do it necessarily with individuals who are their enemies or who they don't care about, but it's with the ones that are close to it that they will reconcile. And so chimpanzees do it with kissing and embracing. Bonobos do it with sex because they do everything with sex, and so they, they have a, li a little sexual encounter after a fight. But all of them repair their relationship because their relationships are very important to them. Uh, their survival depends on cooperation. Their survival depends on being together and doing things together. And so a fight, even though the fight may give short-term benefits in the long run, it is detrimental, and that's why they repair the relationships. Yeah. Speaking of bonobos, they come up a fair amount, of course, in this book. But one of the things that's really interesting, and I think you addressed this uh, at least indirectly along the way, is that whether it's just general kinds of books or studies or observations or any kind of thing uh, related to to apes. I mean, you hear and read predominantly about chimps, and by comparison, very little about bonobos. Yeah, that is that is because the anthropologists have decided. That's ma mainly male anthropologists. I, sh I should add, they have decided that the course of human evolution has been that we we are an aggressive species who conquers the world. We eliminate the Neanderthals. We eliminate everybody else. So they have a, a quite an aggressive story of human evolution, and the chimpanzee fits in there. The chimpan because chimpanzees kill each other between territories, the males do, and so the chimpanzee fits perfectly, and so that's, that's a coherent story for them. The bonobo, which is exactly equally close to us genetically as the chimpanzee, doesn't fit because the bonobos are female-dominated. Bonobos mingle between groups in the wild. They, they, it looks more like a picnic than like warfare because they just sit around and groom and have sex with each other. Um, the bonobos also have all this sexual activity that this makes some people uncomfortable. And so, yeah, the bonobo doesn't fit, and so the bonobo is marginalized, and they usually say bonobos are, are odd or strange, or they don't know what to do with them. Yeah, I think the bonobos need some sort of a marketing plan or a publicist <laughs> or something, because, yeah, it does seem so disproportionate, which only is even all the more recognizable in a book like this, where bonobos are treated approximately equally in the book with, with yeah, chimps. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically the marketing strategy of the bonobo. I see. Okay, well. Because <laughs> I keep talking about them as the make love, not war primates. Uh, so it's a bit of a simplification, obviously, because they are not entirely peaceful. But, um, I do try to promote them because I think they are equally relevant. I'm not saying that, the, that they are more relevant than the chimpanzee, but at least equally relevant. Right. Yeah, and so a few years back, I was fortunate enough to speak with uh, Claudine uh, André yes, on the yes, show. Know, and, yeah. and to me, uh, obviously, she uh, couldn't be more steeped in the bonobo world and, and it was fascinating, and yeah, I, I didn't get any sense either, obviously from her, but even just hearing her describe their world that they were weirdos or odd. It was like, yeah. wow, these are to me, these are people to these are animals to emulate. Uh, yeah, but there are people. You know, one time it happened to me, I, I gave a lecture about bonobos and there was an old male professor in the audience who said, what is wrong with those males? And so he was upset that the male bonobos are dominated by the females, <laughs> as if these males have a, have a terrible life, which is really not the case. 
given all the sex that's going on in the bonobos. Yeah. I don't think the males have such a terrible life, but he just couldn't stand the idea. Wow. That's worthy of its own study, I guess, in some ways. <laughs> but uh, So this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dr. Franz DeWald, the uh, primatologist who studied animal behavior for decades. His new book is Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions, and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. If you'd like to join the conversation, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text Text 813-433-0885. So let's talk about something that, that I think people that are, have dogs think about and talk about and probably debate in some ways endlessly, which is the idea of when you come home and something's amiss in your house and the dog you think looks guilty. Mm-hmm. Talk, Dr. DeWall, about to what extent that's true and what to what extent we might be interpreting something that may or may not be as clear-cut as, as it seems. Yeah, people have done experiments on this, um, the guilty look of the dog. So they have done experiments where, for example, the dog has done nothing wrong, but the experimenter has messed up your kitchen and, and you come home and you look at the dog or you scold the dog and what does the dog do? Or, or the reverse, um, the dog has done something wrong, but... The evidence has been eliminated and then see how they respond. The conclusion of many of these experiments has been that uh, dog guilt is basically anticipation of trouble, anticipation of punishment. Um, But I think think that that we need more experiments because I've also heard very often from dog owners that they come home and they don't know anything of what has happened. They, They have not seen any evidence yet, but they see in the behavior of their dog already that something has happened in the home. So that means that the dog is already signaling um, the, 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 um, the mistakes that occurred in, in their behavior. And so I think we need more research. And, and I also feel that human guilt often is anticipation of punishment. So we, we tend to think of ourselves as we completely internalize the guilt. But there's a lot of politicians, for example, who, who apologize on TV, but only after they have gotten caught before that time, they probably didn't feel bad at, about what they were doing. And so I don't know how, to what degree, human guilt is what it has been made out to be. Yeah, we, uh, we continue to, to make those interpretations, but it sounds like it's, it's not anywhere near as clear-cut as a lot of uh, dog owners uh, have concluded. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about uh, grieving, uh, about um, laughter and happiness expressed that way. Now we've talked about, or at least debated a little bit about guilt. So another thing that I thought was among many that was really interesting was the way envy or jealousy sometimes is expressed by animals. I think in particular there's a uh, experiment that you describe with the capuchin monkeys Mm -hmm. and who get rewarded or given things that everything's fine. Well, actually, maybe you could just, you'll, you'll do a better job than I will describing kind of what happened there. Well, with the capuchin monkeys, we notice that they pay attention to what somebody else gets. So um, instead of just watching what you get for what you do, they were also watching what somebody else gets. And so we started doing experiments with them where both monkeys, for a very simple task, they get a, a little piece of cucumber, or both monkeys get a grape. And if you do that, they perform many times in a row without any problems. Uh, but if you give one of them cucumber and the other one grape, then you get all of a sudden protest because the, um, the grapes are considered so much better by these monkeys than the cucumber um, that they, the one who gets the cucumber starts to protest and doesn't want to perform anymore. So that's very strange, of course, is that a task that they normally would perform for cucumber, they don't want to perform for <laughs> if, the, if the other one gets grapes. And, and this experiment has been done with dogs. There's um, a, a lab in Vienna, which is called the Clever Dog Lab, where they did the same thing with dogs. The dogs would have to give their paw, and they would get uh, a little piece of bread, I believe, and they are willing... Um, to give their paw many times in a row 
for nothing. But if the if the if there's a dog next to them who gets bread pieces of bread for it, then they start to refuse. Hmm. So, so they're willing to do it for nothing, but only if both dogs get nothing. Right. Okay. I just think that again, it's just so interesting how things shift in that way. So we're just in our final few minutes. Let's try to get at least one or more uh, calls on. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Franz DeWall. Hi. Great show. Uh, I was just wondering what your guest's opinion um, about the end game of all this. In other words, uh, I happen to believe that it's going to be probably, unfortunately, a thousand years before animals get any kind of uh, rights um, codified, you know. And I was wondering if he thinks that his research may help in that end. I think we're a long way off. I mean, I have two wonderful, wonderful feral cats that I feed every day uh, for the last six years. <laughs> and they definitely have personalities. In fact, I've been around cats my whole life. And uh, these two now, though, boy, they, they have definite personalities. And they just, I just love them. But yet, mm-hmm. there I am on Friday afternoon barbecuing nice big steaks on the grill. So, you know, it's a, where's all this going, I wonder. And thanks. I'll, I'll hang up and take my call, my answer off the air. All right. Well, thank you so much for your call and your question, uh, Dr. DeWall. Yeah, I don't know where all of this is going. Uh, um, I, I wonder, we, we are putting an enormous pressure now on animal life in, in the wild, of course, as many species disappearing. And we have these billions and billions of animals that we keep in the agricultural industry. And I think both, both, Cases represent a crisis. I think the the way we treat animals in the farm industry is a crisis in in a way, and uh, the the ecological disaster is looming over our heads. So I think it's not going in the right direction. Let me say it that way. And I think one of the things I would want to see is that we consume um, a bit less meat and that we treat the animals that we do keep uh, in a much better way. That's, that's certainly the goal that I would have. Okay, I think we're in our final moment. Let me see if we can squeeze one Finally, more quick yeah. call in. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Uh, Franz DeWall. Quick Am question I or comment? Yes, you're on the air. A quick question oh, or cool. comment. We're almost out of time. Okay, uh, two real things that happened to me. You know the Kofor Turtle uh, debacle out in Wesley Chapel? where they couldn't build the mall. Well, they finally got all the gopher turtles moved, but however, across the street, there were 50 pairs of uh, sandhill cranes. They just bulldozed the whole rookery out. Now they're all over the county. That's story number one. Wow. Number two, I had I was in a garage with a group of people, and a cormoran walked down the sidewalk and came up to me and was looking at me. I was looking at it, and I'm going, what And the dickens is going on? This bird had the presence of mind to walk up to a human being and ask for help. He had, uh, uh, he had stuff wrapped around his beak, and he couldn't open his mouth. And he sat there in my lap for 10 minutes while I got this out of his mouth. And then I tried to get him to walk away, but he was too weak. So I picked him up and put him in the, in the pond, and, he, and I think he lived. Wow. That's so crazy. these birds are smarter than you think they are. No, yeah, there's, there's several of these stories now on the Internet. Nowadays with the Internet, we get to see these stories, and we sometimes get to see videos of animals asking for help who got stuck or who got entangled or something. That's really remarkable that they understand that humans may be able to help them. Okay, I caller, so. thank you so much. We're going to run now because we are at the end of our time, but thank you so much for both uh, observations. Appreciate it. Great day to you. Thank you. You too. All right, Dr. DeWall, we have reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Dr. Franz DeWall. His uh, new book is Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. And again, wherever you get your books, however you get them, you can get uh, Mama's Last Hug that exact way. So, Dr. Wall, thank you so much for uh, making the time to join us on Talking Animals today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you.
In a few moments, I'll talk with Amber Simpson about the ninth annual Tampa Vegan Bake Sale happening April 13th. A great opportunity to buy vegan baked goods, help homeless and feral cats, and snag some musical rarities as part of Record Store Day. Right now, though, it's time to step into the comedy corner. As a prelude for our chat with Amber about the Tampa Vegan Bake Sale, I thought we'd hear this one. This is Julio Torres with a piece called I Am Vegan in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Hi. Hi. Hello, hi. Uh, I am uh, uh, Julio. Um, I'm originally from El Salvador. Um, but I, um, I live in Brooklyn now. At a... Uh, Como se dice? Uh, vegan queer collective. Um, I am a... Uh, I am vegan, and I am so sorry. Uh, in my experience, uh, the hardest part about being vegan is all of the, um, uh, the apologizing. Uh, people ask me if I miss uh, meat or dairy. I, I mean, I miss being liked. Um, I, I don't miss cheese, but I do miss getting asked to do things. I, uh, I miss my friends and I miss my family. That was uh, Julio Torres with a piece called I Am Vegan, taken from an appearance on Conan. Now it's time to speak with Amber Simpson about the forthcoming Tampa Vegan Bake Sale, the ninth annual Tampa Vegan Bake Sale, no less. This is Amber Simpson back on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Amber. Good morning, Duncan. So, ninth annual. Wow. Yes, I believe it. That's so great. So, we've discussed the Vegan Bake Sale the last few years, I'd say. But maybe you could just uh, quickly review, for those who might haven't heard or don't remember, just the the history of how it came to be. Okay. So, we have done this. uh, Like you said, this will be our ninth year. We always do it on Record Store Day at Mojo Books and Records. And that's because they requested us to be there. So, and can you, uh, they, a lot of people listening uh, to the station uh-huh. probably do are familiar with Record Store Day, but just in case some aren't, maybe you could just quickly right. describe what that is. So Record Store Day is actually a worldwide event where there's all sorts of limited edition vinyl as well as all kind of other sales. Um, there are bands, live bands that play all day. There's all kind of uh, free swag bags and different things like that. And it's just an event worldwide. So everywhere there's a record store, you'll see that they will be participating in Record Store Day. And if so, I could just add, uh, for what it's worth, right. in addition to those things, if you're any kind of a music fan or collector, there's uh, a number of things that are released only for Record Store Day by all kinds of artists and bands from all kinds of eras. So it's a, like a collector's uh, paradise and just all kinds of amazing things that you can't that couldn't get the day before and you can't get usually the day after it's just on record store day right and a lot of people are lined up five and six a.m yeah around the block to make sure they can get uh take advantage of those limited editions for sure okay so it's at mojo it's record store day and but in addition to all that there's all these amazing vegan baked goods so um we always talk about like sort of highlights. Maybe this year we should start at least with what new offerings maybe are 
on tap for uh, for the bake sale. Okay, so starting last year and continuing this year, we actually reached out to a lot of local vegan businesses as well to ask if they would be interested in donating some of their popular baked goods to our bake sale as well. Yeah. So this year we will have even more uh, local favorites from around the Tampa Bay area. Um, so, you know, you'll see donuts, cupcakes, brownies, cookies, bread, muffins. Um, a favorite is always the pizzas, the mini pizzas, um, just anything that you can think of. And, of course, as usual, we're already, we're also still looking for volunteer bakers because the more items that we have available, the more money we can make for the cats. So, so, okay, so two things. One is how if someone's hearing this and saying, wow, yeah, I can get in and I have a, quite a great little uh, item that I've been making for years that people always seem to love. So how would they get in touch or let pe- you or someone else know that, hey, I could bring some baked goods? So we do have a Facebook page. If you go to Tampa Vegan Bake Sale on Facebook, um, we have a big presence there. And if you click on the page, there will also be um, up towards the top. It will be our event page. So if you go to either our page or our event page and leave a message or send a message through Messenger, um, one of us will definitely get back with you and um, arrange how if, whether you want to drop off day of or meet with us the night before or something. Great. So all the information is definitely on Facebook and we share like on, we have a, there's a Tampa vegan page that's a group that there's a lot of vegan information about local events and, and good eats. And we share a lot of stuff on there as well. Cool. Now here's the other key question for again, people who might just only be hearing about this for the first time. How uh, specifically does the proceeds from this uh, fabulous bake sale help cats? Okay. So basically how it started is for the past, I don't even know, like uh, 12 years now, I've been involved in the TNR project, which is, which is Trap Neuter Return for Feral and Stray Cats, yep. it's where the cats that can't find homes are trapped and either spayed, neutered, vaccinated, and ear-tipped and put back to where they are because, of course, they don't want to live with you, but they still deserve the right to live and not produce and, and get diseases. So since I was so big on that, I was always trying to think of ways to raise money to pay for these surgeries and any other medical care and helping any adoptable kittens go up for adoption through all the great local rescue groups. And um, that's how this came about. The money goes for their surgeries, their money goes for any injury they may have, the money goes to help the kittens get prepared or any uh, friendly adult. So basically any homeless cat in the area that needs help, we are willing to donate towards that or any rescue group that's uh, taken in a lot of cats and kittens off the street and need help, we definitely donate to them as well. Any just regular member of the community that needs help um, helping trap the cats in their area and they can't afford to pay for it, we help with all of that. So basically, if you like uh, and care about cats, if you go and buy some items at the Vegan Bake Sale, you're effectively helping who knows how many cats, but you're definitely yeah. helping at least some cats with some sort of either medical issue or to have the surgery or whatever it might be. Right, right. That's great. We um, try to get as many spay-neuter as possible. We're really big on spay-neuter just to make sure the shelters are overcrowded with animals, um, both our local and all across the country. So anything that we can do to help um, eliminate the amount of animals that are entering the shelters, the better. Cool. Here, Maybe you want to answer this question. We're almost out of time, okay. but an email just came in and it says, what is the difference between vegan as opposed to vegetarian? Okay, so the difference is that um, vegetarians sometimes still consume um, milk, uh, so dairy products and eggs and honey and other byproducts that uh, would be from dairy, like whey and things like that. 
And vegan is absolutely no animal product. So um, all items, of course, would not have any meat in it. They would not have milk. They would not have eggs. They would not have honey. And there's so many great resources online for great recipes and cookbooks galore and all sorts of Facebook pages. Right. Okay, cool. Well, again, we've already established that for people who want to get more details and double-check where Mojo is, etc., you can look for the Facebook page or Facebook event page for the ninth Annual Tampa Vegan Bake Sale. So, Amber, thanks so much for, uh, once again, uh, talking to us and uh, helping organize this cool event that has so many uh, great virtues to it. All right. Thank you for your support, as always. Okay, cool. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. All right, we have just about reached the end of Talking Animals for today on WMNF. Coming up at 11, Rob, I think, is off giving another talk, so there will be something else in his stead. But either way, that's going to kick off a three-hour block of interviews, phone calls, news, and more, including in the noon hour midpoint with no delay. Then at 1 p.m., John Gilmore presides over executive session. Then the music kicks back in at 2 p.m. with, as far as I know, Scott should be back today with the All Souls edition of It's the Music. Excited about that. So this is uh, Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I invite you to join me again next week when my guest will be Steve Mornelli, CEO of Waggle which is a crowdfunding website that is dedicated to helping animals in need of veterinary care whose families cannot afford their bills. So I invite you to join me for that conversation. I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. iTunes podcasts are available there, too. There are also links to our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook the show and or me personally and we have a um, instagram page as well so you can hit any or all those be much obliged you can also subscribe to our e-newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news from the talking animals world that's all found at talkinganimals.net i'm duncan strauss this is talking animals on wmnf tampa